following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. We are finishing up this morning our series in the book of Jude. We've done this relatively short series, short for us anyway, uh, five weeks on the book of Jude, this short little book. And so I want to invite you, if you've got a Bible with you, to open up to the book of Jude, just almost at the end of the Bible. Uh, if you've got a Bible app on your phone, uh, get that open, and it's always great to follow along. We, we always have the, um, try to have the, the Scripture on screen, but there's nothing like the practice of having it open, following along, looking down as, as you're going, and, and just engaging with your own, uh, having your own Bible open in front of you. So, uh, and let me just mention as well, we've had right through the series discussion sheets, so if you want to follow up what, you're, what we're talking about on Sunday mornings in your life groups or just on your own, you can grab those, you can get them through the app, you can get them on our website. There's also just a lovely blue box at the back that's got hard copies of those, and so that's just to help fuel some conversation around what we're learning uh, so that we can keep the conversation going during the week. So this morning we're finishing off with this lovely passage at the end of Jude, just a beautiful passage, and I've loved soaking myself in this passage over the last week or so, so it's just a a pleasure to be able to kind of come and bring it and preach it this morning. Uh, This last two verses of the book of Jude, Jacob Freestone, I think, is going to come and read this passage for us. I'm scanning, I'm scanning, there he is. Thank you, Jacob. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious present without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Hmm. It kind of feels like we should end the service there, doesn't it? (laughs) But we won't. Uh, Back in October, our family went on a uh, holiday down to Hawke's Bay, and while we were down there, one day we climbed up Temata Peak. Any of you climbed that uh, kind of mountainous little area down there uh, just by Havelock North? So we went for a walk up uh, Temata Peak, and we picked a particular trail going up that we didn't expect to get to the summit, actually. We kind of just picked this trail. We thought we'd get about, I don't know, partway up, and we got to the end of that trail and then looked at the summit and thought, yeah, I think we can make this. And so, you know, they've got different colored trails. So we, we picked one that was quite a lot harder than the ones we'd done so far. And as you get closer to the summit, it does get harder. And so it was quite the arduous climb getting to the top. And there's several mini peaks before you get to the peak. So you kind of think you're there or almost there. And then you come over the top. It's like, oh, it's still ages away. So kind of up and down. And it was a pretty rugged trail. But we finally got to the top and arrived up there. And we're sweating and, and hot and out of breath and thirsty and needed snacks and energy. And then as we're sitting there trying to kind of regather ourselves and and, uh, drinking a lot of water, there's a road that goes right up to the top and you can drive straight to the summit. (laughs) And so there's a bunch of cars just pulling up, people getting out, these very well put together clothes and taking their photos. No sweat, no perspiration, no energy exerted at all. You almost feel a sense of indignation. It's like, what right do you have to be up here? Don't you know what I've done to get this far? We've made the journey to get here. I offer this as a very weak analogy of the book of Jude and this ending that we are in today. This is like the summit of the journey. These last two verses, verse 24 and 25, it's like getting to the top. It's like the mountain top, and you have this amazing view. 
in verse 24 and 25. It's like looking out over this beautiful landscape, and it is just a glorious view, this spectacular description of who God is and His character and His nature and His works, and the words just tumble out of Jude, all of these superlatives. It's just glorious, so it's like the top of Tomata Peak. Uh, But often what happens is when people get to this part of Jude, they just drive straight to the summit, and they don't look at the rest of the book. And I mean, to be honest, we do this, right? And that's okay. You can go straight to these two verses, and often we just jump straight there and use these verses as a benediction and in church services with these verses because they are beautiful and they lend themselves to that and that's okay but what we have done those of you that have been there for the past four weeks we've made the journey haven't we we've done the trek we have walked up a few peaks already and down a few valleys and we've gone through some hard stuff and you you think about what we've looked at like fallen angels and eternal punishment and God's judgment and people falling away and drifting away and all these difficult things that we've looked at. So we've made the trek through the book of Jude to arrive at the summit. So I just hope the, the view will be all the more sweet because of the journey that you've been on to get to this point. That because we've looked at things like the judgment of God, that hopefully now as we look at the glory of God, it's even more beautiful because we've been through, because we've looked at these passages of darkness, that the, the light is even more spectacular, because we've looked at the, the difficulties and the challenges of, of falling away and people who do fall away, uh, that we now are even more captured by the God who keeps us. So hopefully this is a sweet view from the top of an amazing mountain peak, all the better because we've made the journey so far. This passage is called a doxology, which uh, just means it's a short hymn of worship to God. Uh, it's, this is a passage of worship. It's a passage of praise. It invokes a spirit of worship. I'm hoping that's what it does for you this morning. Really, that's, that's, my, that's my goal, is that if we come away just catching our breath and saying, wow, what an incredible God we serve and worship, that's what this part of Jude is supposed to stir in us and invoke in us. And so I'm hoping that that's what happens to you this morning. So what Jude gives us here are three reasons to praise. It's a simple thing to praise God for what he does, to praise God for what he is yet to do, and praise God for who he is eternally. That's the structure of this passage. So first of all, to praise God for what he does. And what he does is here in verse 24, Jude says, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. That word keep, do you remember that from last week? We talked about the the idea of keeping. It's quite an important word in Jude. Uh, He uses it several times. Last, Last week, it's in that context of keeping ourselves in the love of God. And we talked about how we can keep our hearts close to God, how we can keep ourselves open to God's love, open to His presence, to keep our hearts from growing cold. That's what we talked about, keeping our hearts from from drifting from that intimacy and that connection with God. Hopefully that's been percolating away in your mind through the week. But now as you get to the end of Jude, you realize that yet we're called to keep ourselves in the love of God, but ultimately it is God who keeps us. He is the God who keeps us. And what does he keep us from? He keeps us from stumbling. Now understand what Jude doesn't mean by that. He doesn't mean you're never going to falter. He doesn't mean you're never going to fail. He doesn't mean you're never going to trip up. He doesn't mean you'll never struggle or wander off down wrong paths. This is not some promise that we are never going to have any difficulties because God's just going to keep us completely safe and free from all harm. It's not that kind of promise. The promise is that when you do stumble, you will never stumble beyond the reaches of God's grace. 
that when you do stumble, God will always be there to love you and restore you and set you on your feet again. The promise is that even when we do struggle and we do make stupid decisions and act unbelievably selfishly, we will never fall beyond the grip of God's grace, that he is always there to give us more grace, that where our sin abounds, God's grace abounds all the more, that we can never fall beyond the reaches and the grip and the clutch of the grace of God. That's the promise. I love the way that Jackie Hill Perry talks about this verse and her encounter with these words. She says, eventually the words, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, stood up and looked me dead in the face. I didn't keep reading to the end of the sentence. I stayed there, staring at the words, hoping they were true. For far too long in my Christian faith, I'd been afraid that my being kept was dependent upon the strength of my own hands. But according to Jude, it was him who was able, not me. It's great, hey? That's a lesson that we're so slow to learn. Because I think what we often assume, just implicitly, is that we get saved as Christians, and then God basically puts us on this big treadmill. And we're expected to just keep on running on this treadmill and keep going and keep working and keep striving and keep earning and doing all the stuff that we're supposed to do as Christians and keep earning and and keep making as much effort as we can. And we feel like our position before God is quite tenuous, that it's quite insecure, that we've got to kind of live up to these certain standards in order to keep on being accepted by God. And if we don't, then we feel like, well, at any moment, you know, God may just kick us out of his presence. At any moment, God may pull the lever and open the trap door and we're gone. You know, we kind of feel like, this, am I doing enough? Am I doing enough to maintain my position? I think a lot of people feel like that, that they're running on this treadmill. And then a lot more people, I think, feel like they were running on the treadmill and then realized it was too hard and they've fallen off the treadmill. And they kind of live with a sense of like, well, I just, I can't do it. And they live with guilt and they live with condemnation and they live with a sense of like having completely let God down. I think some some Christians are trying to earn their salvation or maintain their salvation. Other Christians have realized they can't do that, and so they've just kind of fallen off the track. I remember preaching in a church, and a young woman came up to me after the service, and she just had this really kind of heaviness about her, and she said, I don't feel like I can ever do enough to please God. And you could just see it. Like She was on the treadmill, and she was trying. She was doing all the right things. She had this faith. But she just she felt like God's basic disposition towards her was one of disappointment. That she felt like when he looked at her, it was with a look of disappoint, like a disappointed father. Imagine living like that. Well, you may be living like that. But that's how she felt God saw her. And if that's how you feel like God sees you, that affects everything. You just live with this sense of like, I can't do it, and I'm not worthy, and I've, I've just even given up trying. You might keep going through the motions of faith, but you basically feel like I'm completely undeserving of this love, and there's nothing that I can do that's ever going to please God. And what we forget are these words. What we forget is that the same grace that saved you is the same grace that's going to sustain you. It's not that you are saved by grace, and then you've got to figure all the rest out by yourself. It's not that you are saved by grace, but then you've got to kind of keep yourself in this position of right standing before God. No, you are saved by grace, and it's grace all the way through. You're saved by grace, and it's grace all the way home. It's grace all the way down, however you want to look at it. It's grace. It's grace that's led us safe thus far. It's grace that leads us home, as the old hymn says. It's grace, and God keeps us. You can't, you are not able to keep yourself in good standing with God, even the very fact that we would entertain that thought shows how wildly delusional we are. 
You, can't, you are not able to keep yourself in God's good books. You are not able to keep your position, your security, your position before God. You can't do that. It is God who is able, not you. It's Christ who is able, not you, because Jesus got you to that position where you now have relationship with God. If he got you there, it's he who is going to keep you there. It's Christ who will keep you there the whole way through. It's not you. You can't keep yourself in that place. You are kept by God. You are held by God. I was listening, just standing at the back before church, in this pre-service huddle, listening to that song by Lauren Daigle, You Say. And those words, I think, capture it. She says, You say I am loved when I can't feel a thing. You say I am strong when I think I'm weak. You say I'm held when I'm falling short. And when I don't belong, you say I am yours. That's it. When we feel weak, we feel insecure, we, we don't feel anything at all. We are held, we are loved, we are kept by our Heavenly Father. We've got to remember this. We've got to keep reminding our hearts of this, I think. We've got to remind ourselves of this on our worst days, right? When you don't feel anything, you feel a billion miles away from God, you're just going back to old habits, you're the worst version of yourself, you're just this utterly selfish person, I know, because that's most days for me. <laughs> when we have those days, we have to remind ourselves, I'm kept. Not kept by my power, not kept by the strength of my hand, as Jackie Hill Perry says, I'm kept by the love and the power of God. And we have to remind ourselves of this on our best days because it's on those days that you start to think, I really am an awesome Christian. I really am quite something. God must be really quite impressed with the level of my spirituality. I'm certainly better than the person I'm sitting next to right now. I know what you're thinking. The little thoughts that creep in, we just start to get this little sense of like, yeah, I've got this. Christian life, Sermon on the Mount, got it. On those days, maybe more than the bad days, we need to remind our own hearts, you are kept purely and only by the grace of God. That's all you have on your very best moments. And in those moments, that's when pride and self-righteousness can creep in. We start thinking it's more about us. No, it is only ever by the grace of God that you are held and loved and kept. So he is the God who keeps you from stumbling. We've got to keep reminding our hearts of that. Even when we falter, he holds us and keeps us. Then Jude moves from the present to the future. We praise God for what he does, keeps us from stumbling, and we praise God for what he is yet to do. The second half of that verse, and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. Such a good verse. Can't even say it without smiling. It's wonderful. This is great truth. God will present us. Uh, that may, literally, that word present, it means to stand. He will stand us in his presence. Even that's amazing. Like you can't stand in the presence of God. What makes you think you have any right to stand in his presence? But God will enable you to stand. And not only that, but he will enable you to stand before his glorious presence without Fault. Faultless. That's a word that's drawn from the Old Testament, uh, the language of sacrifice. It's the, it's the kind of word that was to do with bringing an animal and offering that animal as a sacrifice, like bringing a lamb or a bull or a goat. And you would always try to bring a faultless sacrifice. 
You'd try to bring an unblemished lamb, a lamb without any particular defects. That would be a faultless sacrifice. And this was the kind of sacrifice that was acceptable before God. And so now Jude picks up that language and he says that one day when Christ returns, God is going to stand you in his presence and you will be like that faultless sacrifice. You will be like that lamb without any spot, without any blemish. Now, how is it that you and I could possibly ever stand before God faultless? The only answer to that question, the only possible answer is that we are faultless in and through Jesus. It's not that God's going to make you personally faultless. We've got tons of faults. Like, I don't know about you, I'm shot through with faults. I've got all kinds of faults and failures and foibles and flaws. Just ask Anna. I've got a lot. I've got a very long list. So there's no way in and of myself that I'm going to stand before God one day faultless. But the beauty that Jude is describing here is that I will be one day faultless in and through Christ. It's a bit like some of you teenagers, young adults maybe, just finished your exams, finished your tests, uni exams, school tests. So imagine this scenario. Imagine that you're doing your test at school and you haven't really studied. You haven't really revised. You've been pretty slack. This doesn't apply to anyone in our household, by the way. Does it, Josh? You haven't really studied very hard for the test, and as you're going, as you're in there and you're writing the answers, you realize I'm I'm just crashing. I'm I'm this is this is so bad. I'm heading for total failure here. And you take that exam paper up to the teacher afterwards, and they look at it and they go, Yeah, sure enough, you've you've failed. This is a mess. What are you even thinking? This is hopeless. But that teacher says, Here's what I'm gonna do. While you were taking that exam, guess what? I was taking it too. And I got hundred percent because I'm a teacher and I'm awesome. And then they take your exam paper that deserved an F and they screw it up and put it in the bin. They take their exam paper, 100%, and they write your name at the top. They give you that exam paper and that now becomes your test score. Now, if, if a teacher did that, they would be fired. <laughs> they would be in jail. But in the kingdom of God, this is what Jesus has done for you. He has taken your faults he has taken your total failed test score and he said, I know, I know you're hopeless. You don't have to tell me. He knows, right? But he takes that and he screws that up and throws that in the bin and he says, here, you have my perfect test score, 100. And that now becomes yours. It's a sheer gift. It is scandalous, but that is the gift of grace. That's how we become faultless. Not because you got a great test score in this life through your own merit, because Christ is faultless and you are faultless in him. When you come to Christ and you entrust your life to Jesus, everything he has becomes yours. Did you know this? Like it's more than just having your sins forgiven. That's amazing, but it's even bigger than that. Everything Jesus is, and everything he has now becomes yours. His righteousness becomes your righteousness. His faultless life becomes your faultless life. His faithfulness to the Father becomes your faithfulness to the Father. His obedience becomes your obedience. His death on the cross becomes your death to sin. His burial becomes your burial. 
His resurrection becomes your resurrection to new life, and it guarantees your future resurrection. His ascension becomes your ascension. His place in heaven right now becomes your place in heaven right now. His relationship with the Father becomes your relationship with Father. His riches become your riches. His future reign over the new creation becomes your future reign, co-reigning with Christ. All that He has is yours. And so on that day, when you stand before God, You're not coming into his presence on your own merit, on the basis of having lived a reasonably half-decent Christian life. It is Christ who will open the door of the throne room to heaven for you, and he will carry you in. And he will bring you before the Father. And he will stand you there. And he'll wrap around you his robe of righteousness, so that when God looks at you, he sees the righteousness of Jesus. So that when God looks at you, he sees not your faults and sin and shame and failure. He sees the righteousness of his own son. So that when God looks at you, he sees the perfection of Jesus Christ. God will accept you on that day because he's already accepted his son. God will welcome you on that day because he's already welcomed his son. God will receive you on that day because he has already received his son. Everything we have and everything we will have is in and through Jesus Christ. That's how we'll be faultless. There's a worship song we sometimes sing, When he shall come with trumpet sound, O may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless, stand before the throne. That's how it's going to happen, is that in him, we will be declared righteous. In him, we will be declared faultless. And that, says Jude, is pretty good news. In fact, it's going to cause great joy, he says. This will be an occasion for great joy. You know the first time that phrase great joy is used in the New Testament? It's when the angels announce the birth of Jesus. And they appear to the shepherds and they say, Behold, we bring you good news of great joy. And then the final time that phrase is used in the New Testament is here in the book of Jude. We're at the end of time, in the close of history. Now we stand before God faultless, and that will be a day of great joy. There's this beautiful symmetry to those two things. Can you see that? Great joy in the first coming of Jesus. Great joy at the second coming of Jesus. Great joy when salvation was begun. Great joy when salvation is finally completed. Because when you stand before God faultless, and you're accepted and welcomed into the new creation, then you will realize this is what it was all for. This is why Christ came. Now maybe it just feels like something you talk about in church and stuff you hear in sermons and things for theologians to talk about. But on that day, you will realize this is my eternity now. This is going to get real for you. This will be you ushered into the presence of God because Christ came, because he lived and he died and he was raised again. That was all done to secure the day when you could stand before the Father and hear him say, welcome home. Come on in. I love you and accept you. And I accept you because of my son. And you have trusted in him and him alone for your salvation. That's the whole purpose of the whole story of redemption to bring you to that moment. That's why it's going to be a day of such great joy. So God sustains us in the present, keeps us from stumbling God will present us faultless in his presence, stand us in his presence, faultless with great joy when Christ returns. 
And then Jude turns, and at the final part of the section, he turns and he just praises God for who he is. Not any particular thing he's done, past, present, future, just he's, he's dwelling on the eternal attributes of God. His glory, his majesty, his power, authority. In verse 25, those, the four words that he uses here are so significant. He says, to the only God, our Savior, be glory. He starts with glory, Gary. Glory. Glory. That, this is the one day. Gary, is, he's always on fire, but today of all days. Glory. And that means the idea of glory is the idea, it's really wrapped up in the idea of light. Glory always has this idea of like it's, it's radiant, dazzling, brilliant light. Think about, uh, if you're familiar with the story, when Jesus was transfigured uh, on the mountain and his, and his appearance was changed. And he, was, he just had the dazzling white appearance before the disciples. That, they saw his glory. They saw the glory of Jesus, this brightness that reflects the, the, the beauty and the splendor and the holiness of who Christ was. And the disciples fall down and they're terrified. And Jesus says to them the same words that he says to you and I. He says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And that's what we need to hear. Because God is glorious, but here's the good news. The same God full of glory is also full of grace. And it's because of his grace that we can do what Judas already said and stand in his glorious presence. If it was only glory, we could never stand. But it's glory and grace together that enable us to stand. Jesus is full of glory, but he is also the God of grace who welcomes us in so we can stand in that glory. and We can behold the glory of God. And one day we will, and we'll see it, at least more of it than we see now, because of the grace of God that welcomes us. And then majesty. Uh, the idea of majesty is a royal kind of term. It's, it was used of, of kings, emperors, this regal kind of term describing the splendor of a, of a king and all of the, the pomp and the ceremony surrounding a king. And of course, we have that term carry over into our culture and secular usage because of King Charles. And if you ever one day go and meet King Charles, you will address him as your majesty. And that term, by the way, I looked it up and it, came, it comes from the 16th century the king of Spain, who decided that he wasn't happy with your highness. It wasn't quite enough. It wasn't high enough for him. So he wanted your majesty. And he decided that he needed to be called your majesty. And that got taken then by successive kings and queens after him. This is how it started. In some ways, it's, it, it sounds like kind of a pathetic story of human beings just needing these accolades needing to be seen for more than they are, needing to be, have these titles greater than they need to have so that everybody else acknowledges how majestic and how royal and how great I am. And we need to remember that when we come to God, God doesn't need us to call him majesty because he's insecure. He doesn't need us to call him majesty because we're propping up his own sense of self-identity and making him feel good about himself. It's, God is majestic. We call him majesty because we are acknowledging that he is, whether we acknowledge it or not, he is the king of kings. He is robed in majesty, arrayed in splendor. He sits on the throne of the universe. He is crowned with many crowns. He rules over all things. He has all the riches of heaven at his disposal. He holds the world in his hands. He is the royal king. He is the majestic one. That's why we call him majesty. And then final couple of words kind of go together, power and authority. And it's pretty much what it sounds like. God has ultimate power and authority over all things. God rules and he reigns. He's the giver of life. He creates all it is. And so he has ultimate authority far above any earthly authority. 
What's so important, though, is the way that God holds that power and authority. You think of Revelation, where John hears about the Lion of Judah, the the great powerful one, the warrior. That's the idea of a lion. God is that powerful God. But he turns around and he sees before the throne, what? The lamb who was slain. And they are one and the same. That's the key. The same Jesus, who is the Lion of Judah, is the Lamb who was slain. And that's so important that Jesus doesn't use his great power to oppress, to crush, to trample, to, uh, to be cruel and malicious and tyrannical. He uses his power to bless. He uses his power to lift us up. He uses his power as the slain Lamb to give his life for others. So he is the powerful one, but he's not powerful like so many powerful people that we know or have heard of. He's powerful in the way of self-giving love. He's powerful in a way of using his power to pour his life out for those that he loves. So glory and majesty and power and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, that's really important. So you have that to the only God, our Savior, and that's classic Jewish monotheism. We believe one God. That's Deuteronomy 6. One God. Hero Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one. And yet now it's through Jesus Christ. And you see here the beginnings of what will eventually be Trinitarian theology. You've got to wait to the Nicene Creed to get to that. But you see the start of it here? That we believe in one God, but He is one God in three persons. And the God that we worship is not just this kind of nebulous being called God. He is Father, and He is Son, and He is Holy Spirit. That's the only God revealed to us in the Bible. This is the God whom we worship, the triune community of love, the three-in-one God. And Jude, when he says, to the only God, be glory, be majesty, be power and authority, it, it can sound like we are giving these things to God, like we're giving Him glory, and we're giving Him majesty, and we're giving Him power and authority. And we need to remember, we're not giving God anything. Like, yeah, in a sense, we ascribe glory and we ascribe majesty, but you don't give God glory. God already has glory. He already has all the glory that he needs. You puny human being are not going to hand him any more glory than he's already got. You're not giving God majesty. He has unbelievable majesty. You puny human being are not giving God power As if to say, here you go, I give you permission to rule the world. God has that with or without you. Thank you very much. What we are doing in ascribing these things to God is recognizing what is already true about him and is eternally true, the God who was and is and is to come. We are recognizing that. We're acknowledging that. And we're bringing our own hearts into conformity with that and bringing ourselves under the authority of this God. So we just need to be aware that you, you are not kind of propping him up, giving him some title, helping him to feel better. We are simply enabling our own wandering hearts and minds to become a little bit more of who God eternally is and has always been. So what can you do in response to all this? Really to worship. That's our calling, isn't it? Like that's why this is here, to Lead us to worship God. And we do that on Sundays. And this is why we gather. We gather to worship. We gather to declare what is true and declare the attributes of God and tell again the story of all God has done for us. But I want to gently challenge you that this is not just something for Sundays. This is something that should stir a life of worship in you. And I would leave you with this question. What does worship look like? Worship of this God, what does that look like for you when you're on your own? 
Not, not just here. This is so important. But what does this look like for you when you're on your own? What does this look like in times when it's just you and God? Are there any of those times? And if they're not, I want to encourage you to carve out some time where you can give praise and give worship and express adoration to God when it's just you and Him. We need those practices as much as we need the community practices of worship. Times where we're soaking our own heart in Scripture. Passages like this and others that lead us to the throne of God. Times when we're lifting our heart to God with or without words. Sometimes we're just like, this was me this week, just sometimes sitting in the presence of God, not saying anything. Sometimes you're too tired to say anything, but you just sit there and you just allow your heart to be drawn to the God who is. Being still and knowing that He is God. Do you have a rhythm of this in your life? Do you have one of those, what Eugene Peterson called, unforced rhythms of grace in your life? Worship is part of this. And the more that we're cultivating a life and a rhythm of worship to this God, the more that these times of worship will be deep, rich, full, and significant because we are feeding in and out of these times with our own personal times of worship. If all we're doing here is coming and singing some songs, going back to lives that are untouched and unchanged by the triune God, these times will be empty and hollow. But if we come out of a life where we are giving glory to God every day, we gather with the saints and we lift our voices to Him, these times will be all the more precious because they flow out of a life of worship. So may we be a people of praise. May we be people who praise God with, with our lips, yep, and with our lives. Praising the God who keeps us, holds us, who's able to keep you, keep you from stumbling. Praising God for what He is yet to do, that one day He's going to present you faultless before the throne. Live with expectancy. Let your heart be drawn towards that day. And praising Him for who He is eternally, a God of all glory, all majesty, all power and authority, now and forevermore, throughout all ages. Amen? Let's pray. God, uh, even now in the silence as we consider your word, our hearts respond, our souls respond, and we give you praise. Lord Jesus, we praise you. God our Father, we praise you. Holy Spirit, we give you praise for all that you are. You are a God of glory, God of majesty, God of power, God of authority. Father, we are sorry for so often fixing our eyes on our own small and insignificant little situations going on in our lives. When God, you're wanting us to lift up our eyes and see the glory and the eternity of who you are. God, give us that bigger perspective. Focus us not on ourselves, but on you, Lord God. Make us people of praise. Make us people of worship, God. Make us people who are willing to give you praise even when we don't feel like it. And some of us, Lord, some, some here don't feel like it right now. And their hearts are far from you and all of this just bounces off them. God, would you give us a spirit of willingness to praise you even when it is hard, even when it runs against the grain of our feelings and our emotions or our schedules and our busy lives or our levels of tiredness and exhaustion, would you give us a willingness to worship, to turn our hearts towards you in a, in a regular rhythm, open our lives to you, and give you praise, the God who keeps us, the God who presents us, the God who protects us. Lord, make us people of praise. Make us a church of praise.
We pray loving you, worshipping you as a community. Father, we thank you for all that you are. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.